So we are going to be in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is going to be our focus. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And many of you are no doubt familiar with these verses before you even turn to the passage because they constitute the theme of this great letter to the Roman church, which is perhaps the paragon of Paul's correspondence at what we have and know as the book of Romans. And if you would please stand for the reading of the word of God this morning. I'm going to read this in context, so we're going to read a a bit more than what we're going to focus on. We're going to start at verse 8 of Romans chapter 1, and hear the word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here's our focus. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we are grateful to you this morning for so many things. Father, most of which is the gospel of your Son. And Father, help us to know that it is your gospel. It is your good news to us. And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand it, to bask in it, and to feel the blessing that it is to each and every one of us, that we would be bold in our witness For Christ is worthy of such things. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to just begin walking through the passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verses 8 through 15. It's part of Paul's, um, it's part of his greeting. And you kind of see, if you want to get a picture of Paul's pastoral heart, you can read the greeting of Romans. But he's anxious to come to them. He's anxious to come share the gospel. He's anxious to be encouraged by them. Little does Paul know that one day he will come to see them. But he does not realize at this point when he's writing this letter that he will come to them in chains for the gospel. Okay? So for I am not ashamed, verse 16 starts right in, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. And let's stop here for a moment and answer a couple of questions, one of which I just answered. First, who is I? We've already established that Paul is the human author of this letter. And I would always encourage you, as as in times past, when you're reading or studying the Scripture, to familiarize yourself with the author and the basic background of the book. And we should understand a little bit about Paul's background to further appreciate the fact that he is the one writing to us about not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ and the centrality of salvation by faith. This is Paul talking, and we need to know a little bit about Paul. And church, remember this. Always, always remember this. 
The Bible is set in real history. These aren't fables or fairy tales. This is historical narrative. Paul, or Saul, which was his circumcision name, was born in the city of Tarsus at roughly the same time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, give or take a few years. Tarsus was an intellectual center in Southeast Asia Minor, which is where we find modern-day Turkey. Saul's parents were both pious Jews, and we know that Saul's father was of the strictest sect of the Jews, a Pharisee, and of the tribe of Benjamin. Though a Jew, Saul was also a Roman citizen. He was very well educated and studied under the celebrated Jewish rabbi named Gamaliel. Paul would have been considered an expert in the scriptures at a very young age and would have known the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Paul would have known those five books forward and backwards, probably having massive chunks of them memorized. And I don't mean when I say massive chunks, I don't mean a couple verses. I mean pages and paragraphs committed to memory. We also know from the book of Acts that at the stoning of Stephen, and you know Stephen was the first Christian martyr, Okay, so in Acts, I believe that's Acts 7, we have the account of the stoning of Stephen. And we know from that account that Saul was there. And he was giving his approval to persecute and kill, if need be, the supposed heretics which were beginning to be referred to as Christians. Paul was there. He was, he was participating in a certain way as, as Stephen was dying for the cause of Christ. And Paul was there giving his approval of such things. Paul despised early Christians. He was zealous to persecute the early church. Men, women, and children. It said he didn't care. He was happy to take them to Jerusalem to be tried for being Christians. And we hear shortly afterwards, if you're, in, if you're following through in Acts, Acts 9, we have the dramatic story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him in a shining light followed by the words Saul Saul and it's repeated and there's a there's an endearing tone to Jesus when he addresses Saul which is amazing because Paul is persecuting him and listen what Jesus says because Jesus says Saul Saul why are you persecuting me he doesn't say Saul Saul why are you persecuting the church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And church, we need to take comfort from that. I'm not going to preach that sermon right now, but take comfort from those words. Jesus considers his body part of who he is. That's who we are. Comforting in, in that regard. Paul is then set apart as God's witness to the Gentiles. And there's some irony there because we have this Jew of Jews being radically converted by an appearance of Christ and then set on a mission to be the disciple or the apostle to the Gentiles. What an amazing story. After this dramatic turn in Paul's life, we have him introducing himself in this very letter, if you go back to the beginning of Romans, referring to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So from a persecutor of the church to his own reference as being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And bondservant is a fancy way to try to clean up the term. The term is doulos. It means slave. Paul refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, and he's happy to refer to himself as such. 
So we, here we have this converted Pharisee, a slave of Jesus Christ, making the proclamation that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Quite a transformation. So now we know a little bit about who Paul is. Let's turn to the second question in this short phrase, that being, what is the gospel? Well, if you were a Roman citizen back in the first century AD, you would know that when something favorable was happening about the emperor or there was a report of a successful military campaign, the news was prefaced with the statement of euangelion, good news. In antiquity, they would have runners. I think this goes back, I was trying to do some research on this this, this week, I didn't get very far, but I think if you look at the early Olympiads, the marathon runners were based on these people who whenever they were at the side of the battle and they saw what was going on, they would send a runner back to deliver the news. And a, a trained eye on the watchman could see the runner coming from a distance. And they would know immediately whether the news was good news or bad news just based on the way the runner was approaching the city to bring the news. But it simply means the good news. This good news that Paul is about to relate, however, does not come from the Roman emperor. It does not come from any human power, but from the creator of heaven and earth. When there is an announcement of good news from heaven, all ears should open. Paul, in the book of Romans, is preparing to lay out in the clearest of terms that mankind is entirely lost without any sense of hope or salvation from their own sin and guilt. That we are born in sin without any ability by ourselves to remedy the problem no matter how hard we may try to work and that because God is holy and righteous, we talked about that a few weeks ago from Isaiah 6, the fact that God is holy, about how the disciples in a certain way would relinquish from Jesus when he would pull the veil up and show himself as the Holy One of God. God is holy and righteous, and he cannot look upon sin. Because of this, our only plight as fallen people is eternal separation from his goodness. Does any of that sound like good news? Mm -hmm. That's not good news. If we have no ability to solve this problem in ourselves, that's bad news, is it not? Paul lays out this bad news thoroughly in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, up until the but in Romans 3.21. We're going to touch on that later. But Paul, by the grace of God, does not stop with the bad news. The good news that Paul is not ashamed of is the fact that God himself has dealt with this problem or this bad news in the person of his very own son. I find it amazing that Paul states that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why does Paul say this? Well, I wish the body of Christ in the United States, I wish we, I wish I would read those words today and let them sink in that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. God forbid that we be ashamed of the gospel. And beloved, I'm afraid that all too often our churches and we ourselves reflect shame. You say, how is that? Because the good news begins with bad news. That humankind is lost in our sin, not popular. Not popular at all. Was not popular in Jesus' day, not popular today. 
And church, can I remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote no less than four of the New Testament books from a prison cell. That's how unpopular the gospel message is. Four books written from a prison cell. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He had to be snuck out of cities for fear of assaults on his life that he was laughed at by the intellectuals at Athens. He was regarded as a fool in Corinth where he poured his heart out. He was stoned in Galatia. In 2 Corinthians 11.24, Paul says on five occasions that he received 39 lashes. You know why 39? Some of you out there know why 39. Because 40 was thought to kill the person. So he received 39 lashes. They would be gracious and hold off on that 40 just in case it might be the one to do them in. But on several occasions, Paul received 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods. Church, the gospel provokes. It provoked back then. It's provocative today. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Fallen people do not like the insinuation that they need a savior. Not popular message. R.C. Sproul comments on this. He says that we enjoy relative safety from violent attacks against us may indicate a maturing of modern civilization with respect to religious toleration. Or it may indicate that we have so compromised the gospel that we no longer provoke the conflict that true faith engenders. It's a worthwhile thought. Just as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember that, the power of God. Continuing on with verse 16 in that same vein, Paul writes, it, referring to the gospel, it is the power of God. He uses that term frequently. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Works ceaselessly? What does it say? To everyone who what? Who believes. Power. The Greek word is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is effective And it possesses power because it is God's plan. Indeed, it is God's gospel for salvation. This didn't come about by our plans and our ideas. This was founded in eternity past by God himself. It is God's gospel. It is God's plan for redemption. For salvation to everyone who believes Salvation is a churchy word, not one you hear on the streets every day. It means deliverance or better rescue. I like that word better. It's rescue. Salvation is a rescue. We need rescued. We cannot help ourselves. If you're broken with no hope of being fixed, you need rescued from the wrath of God. And again, to whom is this salvation given? To everyone who believes. 
What does it mean to believe? We've talked about this several weeks ago. I, I, I think we talked about this um, perhaps in February in one of the messages. What, what does it mean to believe? Well, it means to abandon anything within ourselves that we think is redeeming to God. We abandon that because there is nothing. To believe means to trust. Mm. That's rough. We hear trust and we, we kind of get goosebumps up our back and we think, oh, I love that word trust. Trust is very, very difficult for the fallen nature. To believe is to trust. To believe is to rely upon. In other words, again, to abandon anything in ourselves that we see as maybe attaining to God's favor. We cannot do it on our own. Believing is to have faith in. Do you see why this is good news? I hope you're going to see it clearly. Aaron, you're telling me to be saved from the wrath of God for my sins, which I can do nothing about on my own. All I have to do is place my faith in or believe in what Jesus has accomplished for me. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Verse 17, we're gonna talk more about that here in a minute. How the whole idea of salvation by faith goes all the way back to Genesis. It's not a New Testament idea. Sometimes I think we get caught up in that. We're gonna look at it here in a minute. Verse 17. Paul says in verse 17, for in it, in it again, the antecedent of it is gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, revealed to means to be uncovered. Some translation means being, being revealed. It is being revealed to us, this righteousness of God is being revealed to us in the gospel. And perhaps more accurately translated as a, listen to this, this is very important, a righteousness from God. Critical, we're gonna talk about it. A righteousness from God. Not necessarily the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness provided by him. So important, immensely important. I've said this before, we are Christians, if we are a Christian, by the grace of God. We are Protestant, most of us in this church, I assume everyone in this church, since you're not in a Catholic church currently. We are Protestant by conviction. We are Christians by the grace of God, but, but our convictions go back to Protestantism. You know what Protestantism is, is tied directly to? The doctrine of salvation by faith alone. That's what it's tied to. This was so important to Martin Luther, who we would trace back as one of our spiritual descendants, if you would, if, if you want to call it that, to the headwaters of the Reformation. Martin Luther struggled. Um, I'm going to tell you a story because I love it. I love the story of Martin Luther. I love church history. It's worthwhile. I encourage all of you to study church history, to read about people who have gone before us. We stand on the shoulders of titans here. Martin Luther, if you'll go back into, the, into church history, we, in the 1500s, the, the Catholic church was in a dire mess, okay? They were uh, selling indulgences. They were trying to raise money to build this great cathedral. They were telling people, they were going out to the populace and saying, you know what, if you'll give money, those poor relatives of yours that are dead and in purgatory, if you'll just give us a little money, 
they'll spring right out of purgatory and go right to heaven. That's what they were telling people in order to raise money. They were also selling indulgences, which was, is kind of a way to say, you know what, if you give us some of that money, that sin that you've been really worried about, a particular amount of money, that sin's gone. That's kind of what an indulgence is. That's what the, the church was telling its people. Martin Luther was struggling heavily with this. He's a monk. We'll get into the, the story of how he became a monk. It's very interesting if you want to look at it. But he's a monk. Martin Luther is a monk growing up and living in, in this situation. And he's struggling because he was a lawyer. And he quit law school to become a monk, much to his dad's dismay. He quit law school. He understood law. He had a keen mind. But he said, you know what? I'm going to join the monastery, and I'm going to become a monk. And that's what he did. So Martin Luther is in the monastery. He's struggling with, with the law because when he looks at himself, he realizes that he falls far short of the standard that God gives to us for righteousness. That's where Martin Luther is struggling. Martin Luther would go in. He would have his confessional for the day, and most people would go into the confessional, and in three minutes they would be out. Martin Luther would spend hours every day in the confessional. And he, he, he relates that whenever he would get to the end of his confession and the priest would say, Brother Martin, you're, you're absolved of this sin. He said, I would feel release. And he said, in the next moment when my mind went to sin, it would collapse in an instant. It brought the priest to the point of saying, Martin, are you okay? You come in here and you relay three hours of sin every day. We are in a monastery. How much trouble can you get into in a monastery? If you're going to confess a sin, make it a big one. You don't have to confess that you were coveting Brother Joe's bread after dinner last night. You don't have to confess that. But Martin Luther knew something. He knew the standard wasn't being to be judged by the people around him. The standard was God himself. Martin Luther knew he did not live up to that standard. Knew it well. And one of his confessors finally asked him, they said, Brother Martin, do you love God? Listen to what Martin Luther said. He said, love God? He said, I tell you sometimes I hate God. He said, I see Christ as a consuming judge, sneering down his nose, looking at me, waiting for me to step out of line so he can come and hit me over the head. You feel that? Man, that was shocking when I read what he said. But then when he explained what he, where he was going with it, I'm like, he didn't understand the gospel. You know what changed Martin Luther? Obviously, the Holy Spirit of God. But you know what he was studying when it occurred to him what he was missing? Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He said, when I realized that the righteousness that Paul is talking about in that verse is a righteousness that God provides. It's not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous. It's a righteousness that God provides to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He said, when I understood that, it was as if the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. He would never compromise on the gospel from that point forward because at that moment he understood that the gospel was based on something that God had done for him in Jesus Christ, applied to him by faith. That is the gospel. 
The idea of God providing a righteousness for fallen man goes back to the garden just after the fall. If you want to look back to it, we're not going to turn to all these verses. But Genesis 3.15, all the way back to early Genesis, you have the idea of God providing a righteousness that was coming. He's talking to Eve about how he's going to put dissension between the, the seed of the woman and this one that he's sending to redeem mankind. Genesis 3.15. The idea of righteousness being linked with faith can go back to Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham, it says this. I'm going to quote it. You can go back. But again, it's Genesis 15, 6. It's, God is laying out to Abraham, and it says, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Church, that is justification by faith alone in Genesis. Not a new concept. God counted the faith of Abraham as righteousness, immensely important passage. Because here is the question of questions. How can a sinful person stand before a holy God? That's the question of all questions. How can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? Psalm 130, verse 3. O Lord, if you count iniquities, who would stand? What's the implied answer? Oh, Lord, if you count iniquities, who would stand? What is the implied answer to that question? Nobody. Nobody. And we get to the culmination. I'm going to tell you something. Anytime I get a chance to read Romans 3, 21 to 26, I'm reading it. And we're going to read it right here. Because Paul lays this out in Romans 1 to 3 about how we are all hopelessly lost, Jews and Gentiles, equally lost. He gets to Romans 3 and verse 21 to 26, and I've got to read it. If you're into underlining passages in Scripture, this would be high on the list. Listen to what Paul says. This is immediately after laying out the hopelessness of mankind. Romans 3, starting at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's what we're just talking about. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Thank God for such things. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a payment by his blood to be received by what? By faith. It's to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, that is God, might be both the just might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man. No elaboration necessary. Straight from the pen of Paul. What we could not do for ourselves, Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, and by the grace of God, our Heavenly Father applies the very righteousness of Christ to us through faith birthed in us by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the Trinitarian nature of salvation in what I just said? 
What we could not do for ourselves, Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, and by the grace of God, our Heavenly Father applies the very righteousness of Christ to us through faith, birthed in us by the Holy Spirit. If you want to study up on that, go to John chapter 3, a well-known chapter. Faith that is birthed in us by the Holy Spirit, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father wills it, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it. Rock solid. Do you hear that, church? Your salvation is built on an unshakable foundation. If you are one who has faith in Jesus Christ, do you see the exchange? Our filthy rags for his unstained garment. Man, good stuff. When you or I as sinners, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, believe the gospel, God credits that faith or belief to us as righteousness. On the basis of faith and faith alone, God will impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ to ungodly sinners. Our sin is punished in him. We are the receivers of that righteousness. Only God comes up with something like that. Paul speaks of it as a legal declaration. We were condemned. Now through faith and faith alone, we are justified. Church, we are declared innocent. If that isn't good news, I don't know any. Sometimes I fear that we're a bit too ho-hum about this good news. And I think it must stem from a lack of true understanding of our predicament. Again, we've discussed Paul at length. Listen to Paul discuss in Philippians how he once trusted in his own righteousness and how that trust has been shifted and now what Paul feels about his own righteousness. Let's turn to it, Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. So much in this passage. I'm I'm obviously not going to get to all of Romans 16 and 17. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Listen to Paul, and again, remember who Paul is. Raised by pious Jews, he was a Pharisee, he he persecuted the church, all of these things. He trusted in himself, entirely trusted in himself. Now listen to what Paul says after his conversion, Philippians 3, chapter, excuse me, verses 1 to 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, that would be the wicked Gentiles. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You know who those who mutilate the flesh are? Those are the Judaizers. Those are the people that say, you know what? It's good to have faith in Jesus, but... Anybody know those people? It's good to have faith in Jesus, but... You need to be circumcised. It's good to have faith in Jesus, but... That's what he's talking about when he's talking about those who mutilate the flesh. Those who still hold on to something that they can do to earn favor in God's sight. That's what he's talking about. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Listen to what Paul says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's talking about who he thought he was before his conversion. He's he's hearkening back here. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's what Paul's saying about his pre-conversion. Circumcised on the eighth day. Listen to this litany. Paul's going give to him, give him a list of, of who he was as a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, listen to how Paul re relates himself, blameless. Listen here, Paul. whenever Paul writes but, tune in. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And church, let this be our prayer this morning. Listen to verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, that I may know him, that this be, would be each one of our individual prayers today, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Man, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. In closing, the subject that we have just discussed falls under the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I mentioned that earlier. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is shorthand for justification by Christ alone. According to Martin Luther, the doctrine of justification by Christ alone is the issue on which the church stands or falls. Why is that? Because it's the gospel. It's the good news. And this is why the gospel is such good news. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. We have no hope otherwise. The gospel tells us that we are declared righteous before God by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God himself is upheld because he has punished our sin in his very son. Some people may say, well, if God's so great, how can he justify all you Christians that are out there sinning all the time? It's because he's punished every one of our sins in his own son. That's why. That's why God is able to be described as not only just but the justifier of the ungodly because he hasn't winked at sin or looked at it through his fingers or wrung his hands about it. Every one of our sins that have ever been committed were paid for in Jesus Christ. That's good news. How much more reason do we as Christians need to seek to live a life that is pleasing to him? Romans 12:1. After Paul presents all of this, he says, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to the one who without hesitation gave his life for us. Church, Paul was sold out to the gospel message. And when we understand what we have been saved from and how that salvation comes to us, we should be sold out as well. Let's pray. 
Father, we are absolutely unworthy of such things. I pray that your Holy Spirit would cement the story and the truth of the gospel to every mind and every heart that sets in this building today, including my own. Cement it there. Father, that we do not wander from it. That we are not self-righteous because we know our righteousness, whatever we may think of it, is nothing more than filthy rags. But that you do not leave us naked. You clothe us in the very spotless garments of your own son through faith. Father, it is good news. God, help us to understand this. I just pray that you would be with us as we go out from here. I pray that you would help us to internalize this, to understand it, to receive that power that Paul tells us that is yours because it is your good news. It is your power, and I pray that that power would be expressed through us as we go into our homes, as we go into our places of business, as we go to the stores and out about our way, that we would exude the gospel Guide and direct us. Humble us, Father. Thank you for all that you do for us. Lord Jesus, for your obedience, even to death on the cross, for the sake of your people, and for the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again to the truth. We are grateful ever for these things, Father. And to you we give all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.